0: On air, online, on d- digital. D- digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, looking at the issue of potty calves on dairy farms.
2: For the dairy industry and what we're asking of these guys, you've got to think that we're asking them to hold twice as many calves as what they used to. That costs money. They've got to build new sheds, they've got to increase their labour, it costs more milk. This is an expensive thing for them to set up.
1: And the old way of getting to school, using a horse and cart.
3: You know, you tell the kids, you know, your grandparents probably went to school in a horse and cart. So, you know, and it would have taken a long time. You know, it's not something that you can just quickly get in a car and race to school. It takes a lot of hours.
1: Yeah, it used to be a great way of getting to school via the horse and cart. I can remember riding a horse when I was a lot younger. <laughs> Those days have long gone. That story coming up and in just a moment, tackling the issue of potty calves in the dairy industry. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday, which does mean we'll check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey a little bit later in the program. We'll also take a look at what cattle prices might do in the new year, which is only a couple of weeks away, believe it or not. Plus, we'll go urchin diving on the East Coast and find a new way to trace A bottle of wine. Also, we'll check the weather and take your thoughts on any issue via the text line 0438922936. That number 0438922936. First up, a spinach grower whose product has caused at least nine people across Sydney to fall sick believes it may have been contaminated with the poisonous thorn apple weed. People are being advised to throw out any Riviera Farms branded spinach sold through retailer Costco with an expiry date of December 16. Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano spoke with the grower this morning and says they're horrified about the contamination.
4: Oh, obviously having a terrible day. This is kind of the worst nightmare um, for a grower to, to have um, some kind of food safety recall that you need to do on your farm. But I would say that it, you know, it's very much a demonstration of how the food safety... Uh, processes of put in place actually work. So the grower's been notified and now just working through the process of elimination to work out exactly uh, what the contaminant is.
5: And the grower suspects that it was a weed?
4: Yeah, the grower, because you're able to identify exactly where a particular product come uh, from in your paddocks. They've gone back to where that, the, the batch that has created the issues uh, was picked from. And they've identified a, a weed that is in you know, larger numbers than what they would ordinarily expect. Um, and that's on the back of, you know, these weather conditions that we've been having. They've never had that particular issue before, but they do suspect at this point in time that it's a weed that's, um, that's caused the problems. Having said that, they've of course got to go through the whole process of elimination because it may not be what they suspect it is and all of that testing is occurring at the moment.
5: Can you say at this stage what that suspected weed is?
4: The grower suspects that it might be a thorn apple, um, which is really quite odd. Uh, that, that's what they're thinking at the moment. But having said it, like I said, they've got to go through and do all of the plant biosecurity testing. They've got to do chemical contamination testing, and that's got to be coupled with both the retained samples um, and testing those, uh, testing the record product, and, of course, the reports back from the health department that'll be doing the toxicology reports from a health perspective um, with the people um, who have become ill.
5: And really serious health effects, the, the symptoms reported by the health authorities, uh, hallucinations, delirium, rapid heartbeat, blurred vision, pretty, pretty scary stuff.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I, that's why these things need to be taken seriously, which is why the grower has done both a trade recall and a retail level recall of all the product um, that's out there. And they have absolutely identified what batch. Uh, that they believe that it's come from. So all of that product um, has, of course, been removed from the shelves and, and trying to contact um, as many customers as possible to, to let them know to re-
5: return the product. Is it common with leafy greens, micro green spinach for uh, weed fragments to to make their way into the final product?
4: Oh, I guess, you know, we've all had, um, you know, a little piece of grass turn up in our mixed leaves bag at some point in time. I mean, it's, you know, the way that it's harvested. But generally these things are identified somewhere along the process. But if, you know, I I can't comment as to exactly how much there has been um, as a contamination in the product because I haven't seen it. Um, And the grower will now need to put in place extra processes to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Once it is identified, of course, that that is what has actually led to the problem. You know, that particular farmer is a notable um, farmer who has been farming for generations on that land and never had that kind of problem before. So, you know, it it is a demonstration that there's a process that works, that it's been picked up so quickly and will enable them to eliminate the, um, the risk moving forward.
5: And on that point about the reputability of the grower, I mean, it must be horrifying or it must have been horrifying when they learnt what was happening.
4: Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I spoke with him this morning and he is he's a reputable grower. Not only that, you know, he puts a lot of effort into advocacy and industry um you know different product lines all of those things and you know he just said oh can you just i said what can we do to help and he said oh my god if you could just make all of this go away because it really is a grower's worst nightmare to think that a product that's out there is um causing harm to people and wanting to do everything possible to ensure that you eliminate that um that problem straight away and then of course making sure your processes are right moving forward
5: have you ever heard of anything like this ever happening before
4: Well, I mean, we know that we've had contaminations in the past, like different chemical contaminations or, uh, you know, bacteria loads that have gotten too high and we've seen those sort of product recalls before. I mean, this one, uh, you know, even surprised me. I thought, geez, you know, what weed if if it is a weed, but again, until we go through all of that testing process, at this point it's just speculating that it's that weed, and that's the grower, of course, wanting to get on top of the problem you know, as soon as possible. Like I said, that that, that production of that product is stopped on the farm, there'll be no further um, distribution of the product, everything's being recalled, all of that testing needs to happen so that everybody can be sure that they know what the problem is and then work out what to do to um, to remove the problem, and of course, you know, remove that product and, and any further risk that might be uh, presented to the community by by distributing further product, which the grower, of course, is absolutely not wanting to do.
5: Mm, And it's understood at this stage that it is isolated to those one kilogram tubs of spinach, branded Riviera farms, sold through Costco, and as you said, with the best before date, December 16. Uh, So at at this stage, isolated to those products. uh, Could it be more widespread or could the same or a related issue emerge from other farms?
4: Again, depending on what the exact contaminant is, we're, we're all speculating at this point in time. I bet that there's a lot of growers um, probably in that region, you know, out there checking today, and, and the growers will support each other to make sure that this particular weed, if it, if it does turn out to be this weed, that is going to be a risk that's going to be um, managed or, you know, have to be eliminated from the supply chain altogether. Um, it was the one kilo packs, as you said, and some of the 350 gram bags also, but through the same retailers of, of Costco Um, in New South Wales and everything else is being recalled at this point in time. So hopefully the problem has been nipped in the butt at this point um, and then actually doing that analysis is what we've got to turn our focus
5: to. Just finally, Emma, I guess we do see, we saw it happen with the needles in strawberries, but when a particular product has a a negative news story that that can affect sales and the popularity of that product more broadly, uh, what would you say in relation to that to consumers?
4: Yeah, there would be a concern and that does happen, but it, it is a shame when we see, you know, products that are completely safe. Um, not being purchased and it can have such a big impact on growers um, you know other growers and I would just say that this is this is a demonstration of how the food safety system works um, and any of those problems would have been picked up so the answer is not to stop buying spinach or any other leafy products at this point in time because we have you know identified where that problem is coming from you know that the the system has identified it um, and we need to Understand that in Australia we've got one of the best food safety systems in the world, which is why we don't have people, you know, always horrifically sick. And these incidents are always very isolated um, and taken under control
1: very, very quickly. That was Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano speaking there with Angus Verley about uh, Riviera Farms branded spinach sold through the retailer Costco with an expiry date of December 16, may have been contaminated with a poisonous thorn apple weed instead of just being spinach. Awful thing to happen just before Christmas. So, uh, yeah, it's not uh, not good for, uh, for anyone. No winners there. Now, it's one of the more controversial issues in the dairy industry, the fate of male dairy calves. You can, can't milk them. They generally don't get big enough to become beef cattle, So they usually have a pretty short, quiet, sad existence. It's something that the dairy industry often comes under fire for, but Tassie researcher Dr Megan Verdon is working on a solution.
2: I'm a senior research fellow at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture and my research is mostly concerning animal welfare and production. Another project you're working on is a dairy beef project. Tell me what that is. What does that mean? Yeah, sure. Um, So Dairy Beef is another quite a large program run with the support of TIA as well as with the dairy industry and working closely with with the industry to reduce how many, we call them non-replacement dairy calves. So I'll explain what that means. Um, In a typical dairy system, to produce milk, a cow has to give birth to a calf each year. If that calf is a female, she can then be raised to enter the milking herd herself when she's an adult. If that calf is a male, though, there's less use for this, mm-hmm. uh, this calf in the in our industries. And that's because they're, you know, a bit smaller. They don't get a lot of muscle on them. Uh, they don't grow so quickly. So they're not great for the red meat industry. So we're looking at ways that we can improve the value of these male calves. They're mostly male. Um to you know imp- to increase their value so they can become an animal that's more suited perhaps for red meat consumption.
0: This is an interesting one because that's a very hot topic among people outside the dairy industry and inside it. What do we do with all these extra calves? And often it's quite a sad fate, <laughs> a short life for a, a male calf.
2: Yeah, so it's a it's a really it is a really tricky topic. So at the moment, these calves, because they have a low value and there's no real place for them in the red meat market, often they are slaughtered at an early age. Um, the dairy industry, including our farmers, are recognising that this has become a social licence issue. Uh, they also recognise that you know there is potential for these animals and would like to uh, investigate ways to increase their value so they can be reared for the red meat market. So how exactly do you do that? So the the things that we're looking at in particular are whether you can use things like sex semen. So this is a new technology that is available in the industry. So you can get semen for artificial insemination that is 90% likely to be female. So you can choose your best cows in the herd, the ones that that you love and they produce all the great milk, and you can pair them with a really good dairy bull using sex semen. So you're most likely to get a really good female calf from that uh, pairing. For the rest of your cows, maybe your ones that aren't performing quite as well or uh, getting to the end of their productive life, you can pair them instead of with a dairy bull with a beef bull. So all of a sudden from that animal, you're getting a crossbred calf, so half dairy, half beef. We find that these calves tend to grow more like a beef animal end up with the same amount of muscle and eating quality as a beef animal so all of a sudden they're much more suited for the red meat market we are seeing uptake of this management in tasmania which is great to see
0: it's it's a bit like something from a futuristic movie this tech how do farmers respond when you talk about it
2: yeah well they're they're actually quite progressive and they're keen. They recognise the challenges with um, the current system and a lot of them are really motivated to reduce the number of non-replacement dairy calves produced on their farm. So if this is a way to do that as well as offering a new income stream, most of them are really keen to do it and in fact a lot of them are ahead of where the research is on this. They've been doing it for years and we're learning from them um, and really more than They're learning from us probably most of the time.
0: Are there challenges that come out of this? Sounds quite complicated.
2: Uh, There are definitely challenges um, for both the, the the dairy industry and what we're asking of these guys. You've got to think that we're asking them to hold twice as many calves as what they're used to. That costs money. They've got to build new sheds. They've got to increase their labour. It costs more milk. This is an expensive thing for them to set up. And I think that really shows how motivated they are to deliver solutions to this problem. We've also got to produce a calf now thinking about the red meat market. So what do red meat producers want? And how can we make sure our calf meet the specifications that they need? And then on top of that, we've got a fluctuating beef price so at the moment, people are getting paid quite well for beef, which means, yeah, they're more likely to hang on to their calves. They'll get more money for them. But that beef price can fluctuate and go down. So what happens when the price goes down? Um, we may see more animals end up on the truck. We don't know. But we will monitor that. But we need to establish processes now that mean we can that our farmers can... Um, whether that those periods of low beef price.
0: So I guess the hope is
2: that it is going to be
0: financially and effort-wise worth it, this new system.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think it needs to be. That's the only fair thing for our farmers if we're asking them to to do this um, any changes to our systems yes we want them to deliver to animal welfare but that's only one component really of a sustainable system it also needs to deliver to the people involved probably most important they're the ones making the changes on their farm so it needs to be able to be economically uh, feasible it needs to be Um, practical for them as well it needs to be profitable these are the thing other things that we have to deliver to for it to be a sustainable option it's a big task (laughs) there's a lot of things to tick off but you know we're getting there making great progress and I think that that's amazing
0: how far through the program are you
2: this is a is a wider um, larger and ongoing program with the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture so we started it about five years ago with support from TIA. Um, and it's the current round of work that we're doing is supported by Dairy Australia as part of the Dairy High 2 program. So that has funding left in it for a number of years. But it is something that the Tasmanian state government, that the industry and that TIA are really keen to address. So we're hopeful that it's not something that's going to have an end of life.
1: Dr Megan Verdon from Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture there talking to Meg Powell about the possibility of creating half dairy, half beef calves. So males don't have to be slaughtered after a few days.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: 0438922936 is our text line number. Coming up for you shortly, a new way to trace a single bottle of wine. Let's go urchin diving now, and Tom Chadwick from Wildcatch was sold on making a living from abalone diving the moment he got into the water, but he never expected his career would switch to urchin diving. That's just what's happened over the past five years. According to Tom, urchins could be the new oysters, and what's not to like when eating urchins means eating away an invasive species, causing trouble in Tasmania's east coast waters.
6: I started to trade young, and then I was kind of addicted to the water, and as um, soon as I got a bit of an opportunity to head that way, I got in the water, and... Yeah, haven't looked back, really.
7: So <laughs> um, so what was it about getting in the water that attracted you to abalone diving?
6: Um, yeah, well, I love diving. As soon as I got the chance to get under the sea, I wanted to be there. One of the big things I say is that, you know, what I get to do over daytime is what people try and go and do over the weekend. They go places no one else goes and see things people don't see, so it's a pretty big attraction.
7: What's the popularity among the different uh, fishes that you fish?
6: So, yeah, abalone is obviously an age-old um, menu item that's and, and popular you know, throughout the world. But yeah, in the recent years, we've seen sort of a bit of a, an undertaking and the popularity of urchins grow. So um, the sea urchin row and an industry really come along down here. And the periwinkles are another species that yeah, seem to be growing um, as the years go by as well. So the popularity you know, domestically within Australia for sea urchin row and periwinkles has really lifted. Um, they are a lot more affordable, so, yeah, yeah, the average person can put them on the tables. Behind a sea urchin boom in Tasmania, I guess, is the abundance and, um, of the sea urchins has gradual age place where they've actually caused some environmental damage, and, and now it's a case of the more we actually target, the better. And, and that's, that's generally directed at the... The long spine sea urchin, which is a range-extended species from New South Wales. Um, yeah, our, our native urchins, um, they, are, they are quota-controlled as such.
7: So you're focusing on the invasive species, and is that one of the reasons that you're focusing on it, for, from an environmental perspective?
6: Yeah, I, we focused actually down here, or I focused on about eight months of the year on the invasive Species or range extended species, and then we spend the other sort of four months a year on the native species. They actually hit peak condition in op- opposing times of the year, which is really lucky. But yeah, the, the recent sort of over the last five years, the big swing towards the um, the range extended search urchin is is on on an uh, environmental basis, I guess. So yeah, trying to return the balance back into the east coast of Tassie and that's kind of a winner for everyone, really. You're out there doing some good, sort of makes you feel good as a fisher as well and you're giving a bit back. And, you know, it's a great story. It provides a lot of jobs through Tasmania, the state, and to put it on a plate in front of someone and they can eat something that's doing something good for the environment is, you know, it's a really good story. So,
7: hmm. How's Christmas? Is that causing any more demand?
6: We're pretty steady all year round. The abalone quota is based on a calendar year so this time of year is generally just cleaning up what's what's sort of left of the quota um and tidying up things so uh there does tend to be a bit of a rush on on produce this time of year in abalone because of the um overseas festivals and things like that but um the urchins basically stay pretty steady throughout so yeah we've just just started opened up the uh, the season on the invasive sea urchins, so that'll be pretty busy right up until Christmas, and yeah, it'll, it's it's quite stable, I guess, in comparison to the abalone.
7: You fish from all over the state, right?
6: Yeah, yeah, abalone statewide, um, east east coast basically for the sea urchins.
7: It sounds like something that could be added to a fancy Christmas menu.
6: Oh, I think so. It's, yeah, I think it's a growing taste, and it you know, we've had this discussion recently that sea urchin row is not on everyone's menu or desired uh, palette at the moment, but there was a stage in everyone's life where oysters were the same, and now they're a, yeah a staple basically. So we hope in the future to see that the urchin row will be exactly the same. Then we have probably up to 15 or 20 active urchin divers a week, I'd say at the moment, and moving forward, so next week there'll probably be about 20 ton of the centropomus come out of the water all over the east coast. So. We're looking at around a 500-tonne sort of eight-month season at the moment. So, yeah, things have really come, and that's come from about, I think our best, about 10 years ago, was about 100 tonnes. So so I think it's now Tassie's third largest fishery, basically, um, quantity-wise, which, you know, falling by an abalone and rock lobster. So, yeah, it's definitely a lot happening in the space, and it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a great outcome for, I guess, every Tasmanian because the, the more we catch, the, you know, the better the in, impact on the environment and sort of we start seeing even really the balance return.
1: Yeah, turning a pest into an industry. Urchin and abalone diver Tom Chadwick chatting there to Madeline Rojan. Quite a few urchins they're catching each week. Wow. And when you buy your household product, you trust the item is exactly what it says on the label or in the instance of wine, what it says on the label on the bottle. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Geoffrey Grosset is the owner of Clare Valley's Grosset Wines, South Australia. He's developed a chip that sits in the screw cap to combat the problem of wine fraud. He's explaining the product here to Demetria Panagiotaris.
8: We've designed it around the traditional screw cap, which simply now has a chip inserted just underneath the top of the cap. And with any smartphone in the world, you can hold your smartphone over the top of the cap and it will confirm what the wine is and as much detail as the winemaker wants to put in. That's, you know, when it was bottled, where it's from, essentially confirming that it is what it says it is. And as well as that, because it has a sensor down the side of the cap, it can confirm that it hasn't been opened. And so all of that can be done to reassure the integrity of the wine that uh, you're about to buy or you're about to open
9: and what is the need for a product like this why is wine authenticity integrity so important to consumers
8: yeah well i guess we're we're all becoming more and more aware now of the need for integrity from anything from you know what we eat fruit and veg meat uh milk and really that's because there's more than significant amount of faking as one of trump's terms would be you know fake wine there's more fraud in wine than probably ever before And so what we want to do is to ensure that wine made in Australia in particular, that's sealed usually, almost always with a screw cap, can reassure people by having this little chip on the top that um, it is actually what it says and and everything is legitimate about it. And probably the amount of fraud that's occurring, not just with Australian wine, but everywhere, is quite significant and probably a lot higher than people realise.
9: So, how common is wine fraud in Australia, and what does that mean for Aussie consumers?
8: I guess we're fortunate in Australia because one of the other benefits of screw cap, other than uh, the fact that every bottle will be the same, whereas under cork they'll vary they are harder to take the wine. I mean, it's it's more difficult, but not impossible. And so to me, the benefit is once I think more people realise that fraud's occurring on an international scale, we'd like to take that one step further and say, before it becomes an issue, put a chip uh, in the cap and allow people to check and see, reassure them that, that it's legitimate. And of course, the winemaker, there are other marketing benefits too. I mean, the winemaker can tell that can consumer that uh, it was picked on a certain day, um, but also they, it can go to any part of a website that has the winemaker introducing the wine and just telling them you know, what it, whatever, the, whatever the winemaker wants. So there's an opportunity to connect with the consumer, reassuring them that it's legitimate, but at the same time telling them a little bit about the wine to make it more personal. So that's really that's really what we can do with this, and at a very low cost. You're only talking about cents, not dollars. And in a way, we're trying to get in and get people used to just taking out the phone and checking to see that it's uh, what it says it is and it hasn't been opened.
9: Geoffrey Grosset, owner and founder of Clare Valley's Grosset Wines. Travis Fuller, General Manager of Killikanoon Wines, also located in the Clare Valley, is working on trialling the new NCL technology. He shares how he thinks this product will benefit the wine industry.
10: It's a pretty exciting project. I think, you know, as the world... Revolves these days is just compliance. I mean, you you if you say something on a label, you need to be able to prove that it's true. So if it's Clare Valley Riesling, you know how do I know as a consumer or as a department when I'm exporting these wines that it is actually Clare Valley Riesling?
9: And is wine fraud an issue that's on the rise, or is it something relatively new? What's your understanding of wine
10: fraud? Oh. I, it's a big topic. I, I think uh, it's been around for, for decades. There's no doubt that some of the most famous wines in the world tend to find that there are a lot more wines on the market than actually were ever produced. So you go, well, you know, what what is what is it that I'm actually buying? What's in the bottle? You know, the temptation to to modify or to copy brands and products and wines is is high. So uh, I think it's. It's pretty rife. I think that many companies, bigger companies have tried to crack down on it and it's technology like the blockchain technology and what they're putting into these uh, screw caps that actually you know, will give you a lot more confidence uh, and allow you to almost guarantee that, that the product that you've got in the bottle is indeed the real thing. And for us, you could get to the point now with this technology that when somebody purchases your wine in a, you know, in a store in Wimbledon in the UK, well, you know, when they've opened it and you know that it's been opened in that market, you can start to see where your where your product is actually being consumed. Pretty exciting stuff.
1: Amazing. Travis Fuller, General Manager of Killick Canoon Wines, ending that report by Demetria panagia And we also heard from Geoffrey Grosset, the owner of Clare Valley's Grosset Wines, about the chip that sits inside the screw cap to combat the problem of wine fraud. Coming up, memories of beautiful Clydesdale horses, also prospects for the cattle markets next year, and the current livestock markets with Richard, plus a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines
11: with Will Murray. G'day, Tony. Riviera Farms says none of its other products have been impacted by contamination following the recall of spinach sold in Costco. Riviera Farms says it's been in contact with food regulators since yesterday and immediately advised customers to throw away any spinach tubs with a best before date of December 16th. Reduced airline capacity is being blamed as a key driver in high affairs this summer. A recent report by the ACCC shows prices are on average 27% higher than pre-pandemic levels. The report says while a rise in demand and higher fuel prices are also contributing, airlines could help by increasing their capacity. And Tasmania's Education Department says it's made arrangements for a group of students who will be living away from home to attend Year 11 and Year 12 education in Hobart next year. Hobart's only student hostel for students from regional areas – Springvale, will close at the end of this year. Alternative accommodation will be available at TAS Tafe in Moraine, Jane Franklin Hall in South Hobart and Housing Tasmania Properties. I'll have more news at one, Tony. Thank you, Will. And now let's check the weather with Brooke Oakley from the Bureau. G'day, Brooke.
12: Good afternoon, Tony.
1: Still a good mix of... Not a good mix, if you know what I mean, with the weather.
12: It is. It's still cold, wet... Not as windy for the south and the east, and it's sunny, fine and sunny for the northwest of the state. So Tasmania does have a good mix of weather. The temperatures are slightly warmer than yesterday, but that's just because it was particularly cold about southeastern Tasmania yesterday. And Hobart's maximum of 11.5 degrees was the coldest December day in over 50 years. And there were also a number of stations with a shorter history that had their coldest December day on record, including Campania and Grove.
1: You just made me shiver then.
12: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, out, outside right now in Hobart, it's 13 degrees, so that's much warmer than yesterday. Oh,
1: temperate. Fantastic. OK, um, uh, much rainfall about? When
12: well, the 24 hours to 9am this morning, the highest rainfall total was 15mm at Mount St. John, followed by 9mm at Kunanyu, Mount Wellington and Friendly Beaches. Since 9am today, there's been 2mm at Mariah Island, Friendly Beaches and Kunanyi Mount Wellington.
1: Okay, so as we head closer and closer to Christmas, what can we expect over the next few days?
12: Well, for today and tomorrow, we're expecting the showers to continue about southern and eastern Tasmania, along with below average temperatures. And then the weather becomes more settled on Sunday. And on Sunday, it'll be fine apart from some light morning showers about the south and east and the chance of showers about the northwest. And then for the first half of next week, so for Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, it's generally settled and fine conditions with a much anticipated warm day for southern Tasmania on Wednesday. And then we are expecting showers to develop across Tasmania on Thursday and Friday as a trough approaches from the northwest and then moves over the state. Unfortunately, it's still a little bit too early to talk about Christmas Day, but the official Christmas Day forecast will be issued on Sunday afternoon. So tune into Country Hour on Monday to hear all about it.
1: I will grill you about it. <laughs> I'll ask kindly anyway. Uh, warnings, have we got any?
12: There are for today, there's a strong winds warning current for northwestern coastal waters from Low Rocky Point to Stanley and for northeastern coastal waters from the northern tip of Flinders Islands to Wineglass Bay. There are no warnings for tomorrow. However, there are still minor flood warnings current for the South Esk and Macquarie rivers, and those are likely to be finalised over the weekend.
1: Okay, and for people who want to go out in the waters over the weekend, Coastal Waters and Swellbrook, what's happening?
12: For today, we've got south to southeasterly winds at 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots about the northwest and the northeast. The swell in the west and south is a southwesterly of 1.5 to 2.5 metres, reaching up to 3 metres about the south this evening. And the wave rider boy at Cape Sorrel is currently sitting on 2.9 metres. In the north... The swell is confused below one metre, and in the east, a south-to-southeasterly of two to three metres. And the wave rider boy at Mariah Island is currently reading 2.5 metres. And I'll just correct that wave rider boy at Cape Surrell is actually sitting on 1.8 metres with a maximum SIG wave of 2.9 metres. Heading into tomorrow, we've got south to southeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, reaching up to 25 knots about the northeast and the central west during the afternoon and evening. And winds are more variable about the central north. And we'll even have afternoon sea breezes, which is a much more summery thing to say. The swells in the west and south are a southwesterly of 1.5 to 2.5 metres, reaching up to 3 metres about the south. In the north, confused below one metre. And in the east, southwest to south one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half metres, reaching up to three metres in the south.
1: Terrific. Thank you for that, Brooke. You have a lovely weekend. We'll talk Monday. Thanks, Tony. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau.
0: Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Richard Bailey coming up for you very shortly with all the details on the livestock markets, what's happening on the mainland as well. Have you ever watched someone lose their memory in old age? Sometimes certain activities can help restore some of those memories, and that's certainly what Sheffield's Isla Bingham has found when she takes the elderly around in her old-style wagon drawn by beautiful Clydesdales. Meg Powell hopped on for a ride.
3: Come here. Come here. Come here. So it's Isla Bingham, um, and I'm here with my friend Rachel, my helper. We're on a giant wagon pulled by two client's tails. Yes, we've got Nugget, who's a 10 year old uh, from the mainland about seven months ago, and we've got our homebred Bonnie. Um, She's, yeah, we've had her, she's just turned eight. Nugget 17.3, and Bonnie's 16.3, but a couple of axe handles wide. <laughs> I understand this is something that's been in your family for a long time. Uh, yes, my auntie, Annie yeah. Isla, my mum's twin sister and uh, in South Australia, she still competes, or so she's slowing down a little bit. She's actually coming over in January for our Kentish Clydesdale and Heavy Horse show in January at Railton um, God willing she's still well enough, she's in her late 80s, um, my mum's done it, uh, yeah lots of my family have done carriage driving
0: and uh, you're, you're one of the latest the younger generation. Yeah I'll be now.
3: the yo- I'll probably be the youngest um, actually I've got a niece over in WA who's a lot younger and she does weddings and um, yeah lots of weddings over there um, but in Tassie yeah, I'm the youngest over here how did it all start for you? What got you interested? We went on a wagon tour and Amber was pulling the wagon uh, in Western Australia and uh, she was for sale so we jumped at the opportunity and originally she was just for fun and people wanted weddings and different things so we had to get insurance so it's just grown from there. How uh, many years ago was that? That was eight years ago, yeah, They've done a lot of shows recently. Do they tire? Oh, they their guests get fitter. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. No, they get fitter. Um, my horses do a fair bit of work, so um, yeah. And the, the more work they do, the better they get. Yeah. They they get exposed to more things. Things flapping, and they walk over things, and they walk through water. Yeah. They're just exposed to a lot more. So the same as anyone. Do more work, the fitter you get, really. How did they go during the filming of the Bay of Fires? That must have been grueling on set. It can be just take after take. It was take after take. We only had Bonnie, um, but it wasn't a hard job for her. So it wasn't it wasn't too bad. But it was long days. It was cold and wet, and um, um, yeah. So, it, but it was great. It was great. We're going to come through there, though. G back, G back. Good Chinese. I'll just get out of the way. I'll just go down here. They get quite a bit of
0: attention as you go yeah, along. Yeah,
3: the um, sales are very, very popular, um, especially for the young ones and then the elderly because it's it brings back a lot of uh, memories and emotion for the elderly. Yeah, and, you know, some of them with Alzheimer's and stuff, they don't remember what's happening now. They remember what happened when they were young and what their grandparents used to do, So and they a lot of them worked horses. Yeah, so it is. It is a lovely thing, you know, when you get the elderly on, and and then you get the little, the little children, who are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and <laughs> bouncing around. Oh in my the back. gosh, they just absolutely love it. They um, are fascinated that the horse can poo and where it comes from. <laughs> and um, yeah, no, they're they actually. It's, it's really a really rewarding pastime for me. Yeah. They've got nice little neat poo traps there, i Yes, noticed. yeah, that keeps... Come here, come here, nugget. That keeps uh, everyone happy. Um, so there's no poo on the road because most of my jobs are all on bitumen and through town. So, yeah, it's just better that way. Um, and wool, wool, wool now. Yeah, it's better... Um, it's, it's, it's nicer. You don't have poo going down the main street.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it does sound yeah. nice. And, you know,
3: and we're in tourist areas and, you know, people don't want to be tripping over poo and stuff, so it <laughs> just keeps it nice. And then someone yells out and says, Can I have that for my garden? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> take it. Yeah. Got plenty more yeah. where that came from. Yeah. yeah. Do, yep. you ever, do you ever get a
0: bit emotional when you said before you get an old person on and it brings back their memories? It does,
3: yeah. And they actually remember. Um, different things about harness which teaches me and then I can share that as well with other people, the up and coming I have a lot of women that want to do long reining and carriage driving so it teaches, I can pass knowledge on Um, they may know where there's harness um, old harness and we get someone then to help us refurbish the old winkers and things like that so the history instead of it all being chucked to the tip is then reused. The, the leather may be a bit buggered, we put new leather on and you know it's got new stitching and most of it's hand stitched so yeah it just prolongs the history and it's, it is wonderful to hear um, from the elderly what they have to say. And then um, in turn pass that on to the kids who get so excited to yes. come on. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yep. And, and you know, a lot of the elderly used to go to school. So you, t- you, you, know, you tell the kids, you know, the, your grandparents probably went to school in a horse and cart. So, you know, and it would have taken a long time. You know, it's not something that you can just quickly get in a car and race to school. It takes a lot of hours. And then they have to be picked up and go home, or they go to the shop, or the local store, or it was the train station or a siding in those days. So, um, yeah, it's you can pass on the history. Although I haven't had that history, you know, in my lifetime, but you can relay what the elderly have said, and you pass it through to the next little generations coming along, and they tell their mates when they go to school. Yeah, see, so they really share lots of different things. No, yes, oh, I very don't. Rewarding.
0: I don't suppose you take this thing up to, to Woolies, do you?
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. We've been to Woolies. <laughs> I did a birthday party a couple of years ago in Alverston, and I work at Woolies in Ulverston So we um, arranged over the phone, my husband I, I gave the bank card, and I said, race in and uh, grab these lollies for us. And we went in and we stopped the traffic, and they came out and um, handed us all these woolies, lollies, to all the children, and off we went. Um, I did a wedding a couple of weekends ago in Ulston. We went across the bridge, wall nugget, and um, then uh, Rachel and I were thirsty, so we zipped up and she raced in and we just parked in the car park and yeah went to all this. <laughs> 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 Yeah, so they do they do they go absolutely everywhere, we go statewide. Um, yeah, and they just go amongst traffic and people, and it just doesn't bother us. And we can squeeze in between any little gaps and into gardens to get beautiful photos at weddings. And um, we've got a we have got a uh, funeral booked. He hasn't died yet. I hope for for some <laughs> not for some time, but he knows how he's going to go. Um, so that'll be pretty special. He's a family yeah. friend, okay. um, so Come he up. knows how it's going to happen. Come here. Daddy now.
1: There you go, the Clydesdales. That was Isla Bingham from Almost Heaven Clydesdales telling Meg Powell about the magical experience of driving a horse and a cart even down to Woolies to go shopping. Oh dear. After a record year for cattle prices, the market is ending the year on a relatively low mark with the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator sitting at 901.32 cents per kilo. This could be a sign of things to come according to Auctions Plus Chief Economist Tim McCrae. He explains to Alice Marshall the cause of this recent drop and his projections for the new year.
13: Yeah, look, yeah, in the last four to six weeks, it's dropped from four figures down to a low of 855. Um, as of yesterday, the young cattle indicator was just back up above 900 cents. Really interesting market dynamics at the moment, in that, from how we see it, is we have sellers who are wanting to sell to particularly cash flow and income reasons, but you also have a very large pool of buyers. Who, in a falling market, are quite happy just to wait and see where the market goes. Um, you know, but but still pretty keen to be able to buy some some young cattle for uh, what, for most parts, looks like a um a lot of summer feed out there.
7: Is that sort of falling and the steadying of the market, I suppose, due to as well the herd rebuild being over now?
13: Yeah. Look exactly. You know. Um. Yeah, you know, the rebuild is over and we're now into an expansion phase. Um, you know, the herd would now be bigger than average over the last 30 years. And, you know, when you look at it over the last two to three years, the growth's there. There's more cattle on the ground. Producers across the board have a less desire to purchase more stock because they have you know more of their own in their paddocks and you know that that 10 to 20 percent decline in in that demand really has a, a larger impact on the price falls um just because they've they've built up their numbers they're they're happy with what they're
7: carrying and um yeah, it
13: takes a lot of the edge off the the real high prices we've seen
7: so looking into 2023 what do you think the cattle market's going to do over the next 12 months
13: Look, our forecasts are for the cattle market to fall 10 to 15% over the next 12 months. Now, if the last few years anything to go by, it'll be a there'll be a, a few up and downs through that path, but I think the long-term trend is for it to edge lower. Um, and when we look at the, you know, if we're looking at an EYCI below 800 cents by 12 months' time, historically that's still a a good to reasonable price, um, and it really does show just how high prices got particularly in the last 12 months. They are unsustainable, driven by the, the sort of feedback loop of good seasons and, and high prices and, and the real edge is going out of that at the moment as the cattle herd gets, gets bigger.
7: What about our, our processing sector? Does that need to ramp up to ensure that the market can keep steady?
13: Yeah, look, I think there's a real big question mark and I think one of the real interesting things to watch over the next period and it will have a huge impact on the profitability of producers is just how the processing sector can handle what will be a lot of cattle coming at them at some stage over the next 12 months um you know if they're able to get the labor uh, and they're able to get the well energy prices there's a lot of factors that impact have been impacting that sector over the last few years um they're going to have a lot of cattle coming at them and there's always that bottleneck there that uh, could have a big determinant on just where prices go, particularly for finished cattle later in the year as more supplies come online.
7: And what kind of opportunities are you expecting to come up over the next sort of 12 months when it comes to the export market? I know we've been talking a lot about what the drought in the US means for goat prices and, and cattle prices link into that, do they not?
13: Yeah, look, I think there's the, the huge sleeper in the market if you like is what's going on in the us it is a huge imported beef market and is a very good customer of australia's for decades but that's all great but you know for the poor us cattle producer who's been suffering through drought that drought still needs to break i mean it's a situation a lot of australian cattle producers are familiar with it's got to rain grass has got to grow then they can start to rebuild their herd Um, to when that happens you know is i think that'll happen the another 12 months, um, and we'll start to see that demand for Australian beef pick up, but it still has to happen. And I think that's one of the real positive demand factors that's there, but when the actual impact of that kicks in is is a bit of a guess for, for all the analysts out there.
7: And when we're talking about a drop in the Australian cattle market of around that 10 to 15% over the next 12 months, is it going to impact... Any type of cattle more than the others? A feedlot is going to be worse off than, than grass fed or the other way around?
13: No, I think I think particularly the cow calf producer who's had a pretty good run over the last three years of really, you know, light cattle, weaner cattle have been really red hot. You know, I think they see their prices come back, um, have already started to see their prices come back, but I think that decline is sustained. I think, you know, when we look at the feedlot sector and, you know, finished Cattle. Are, you know, again, we're back to that point of what do the processors do? What is their capacity to process animals? If we start to see a backlog of finished cattle, that could see a, you know, a, a price impact that is significant. Um, you know, but that backlog can be worked through if the again, if the processors can you know, really get up to speed. Um, you know, we still look at those factors and look at export markets. That you know, we're pretty positive that beef will find markets, um, but it's you know, can it get through that bottleneck?
7: Is that fall, I suppose, based on the prediction that the season across eastern Australia will stay good? What what if we do sort of go back into a drier phase?
13: Yeah, I think if we, you know, across the board, if we go to a drier phase, I think a lot of them would just call that a normal season now. Um, and you might actually see some smiles on the faces of some producers who are not getting as much rainfall as they have, but then again, you look through large swathes, of particularly that real you know, key cattle producing country in Queensland, where a, a good wet season might see numbers tighten up across the board, but you know, in general for the for the cattle market, the eastern seaboard cattle market, I think we're we're going to start to see some big numbers coming in through the supply chains. Um, and you know, whether that's tighter in certain areas because they've maybe not had the rain of the last few years, and there's a bit of a rebuild in one region, that'll be offset by. Slowing rebuild and higher turnoff in other regions, particularly as we see it through sort of central and southern New South Wales, which has had the run of three big years, Um, you know, a return to dry conditions could actually be a welcome welcome outcome and um, allow a lot of producers to sort of get back into their traditional seasonal rhythms.
1: That is Tim McRae. The chief economist with Auctions Plus, talking to Alice Marshall about the outlook for cattle prices as we edge closer and closer to 2023. Well, talking about cattle prices and uh, sheep and lamb prices as well, it is time on a Friday afternoon to head out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? You're
14: going well, Tony.
1: And Oatlands was a place to be yesterday.
14: Yeah, I haven't been down there for a while. But far out, the countryside looks terrific. I mean, I'm sure that there'll be old timers that will tell me that, that this is not the best season ever. But by gee, I reckon it's got to be getting close. I know that <coughs> I know some of the grass, you know, is a bit wet and a bit blanky and all the rest of it. But just generally, the countryside right down, but particularly when you get down, you know, to Tunbridge and and oatlands, you know, where you normally see pretty some pretty dry areas at this time of the year. That just looks magnificent. And um, There were 4,000, just over 4,000 sheep and lambs. Just about all of them were lambs. Um, that compares with last year. This so last year, there were 10,500. The difference would be twofold. One is that the prices aren't as good, and so there'd be people hanging on. But the other major reason is what well, we've just said the season. Yesterday, the best of the lambs, the, heavier, the, the bigger lambs made anywhere from $102 to $148.00. Medium weight seventy to one hundred and nine dollars, and small fifty eight to eighty eight dollars. I know that it's not sort of that important to, to to sort of compare with last year, but it's probably something like fifty to seventy dollars back on this sale last year. Now remembering that this sale last year was through the roof, so. The other thing that was different this year, normally this sale at Oatlands, normally there's you know, three or four or five pens of Shawn lambs and the rest of Woolly. Well I reckon well over half yesterday were shorn. So the guys down there obviously have got onto their shearers pretty early and got onto that. And I reckon when we get to that that Oatland sale in um in January, I reckon we'll see, you know, the vast majority of them shorn. So that'll be pretty interesting. I expect some pretty big numbers of that sale.
1: All right, let's continue with uh, lamb and sheep and uh, we'll do the cattle shortly. But um, what's happening near the state?
14: Yeah, it's held up pretty well. The the biggest issue through most of the bigger yards is the quality uh, and lack of it. The the, uh, market reporter out of Bendigo on Monday said, she just said that there was not much better than a store sale. You know, and that's just the weather that's caused that. And then the the same was at Wagga yesterday. Uh, Leanne Dax, the reporter there, said the same sort of thing, that there's just, you know, huge numbers of secondary lambs. And so it's meaning that the better quality lambs are still selling very, very well. You know, you've got plenty of averages of these better lambs anywhere from sort of 750 to 800 cents a kilo and uh, then you're very quickly back to 700 cents and less for the for the uh, poorer quality some of the overhooks price overhook prices here are around about that seven dollars or thereabouts so a little bit better in places so you know still tracking along all right at the moment as we've all, as we've said for a long time, we're, we're just a little bit fearful of what happens when the big numbers of lambs, finished lambs, come onto the market. And it looks like that's going to be more like February probably rather than January. Um, a lot of the lambs in Western Victoria at this time of the year, normally Western Victoria, you've got lambs coming out of their ears. But, um, you know, they're good numbers, but they're not, uh, not like they normally are. So they will wait and come. I'm, I'm probably thinking February, March is when we'll probably see some big numbers of lambs.
1: Okay, and uh, the mutton market. What's happening there? Uh,
14: just a little bit better in places. Still pretty sick, but uh, just for five to ten dollars better in most markets during the week, which probably means we've seen the bottom of that that mutton crash. But that probably won't improve much until um, some of the China borders open up. Will will be a big plus there, and so we can shift some of this backlog of mutton that's sitting in chillers and freezers. Okay, cattle. Cattle market, uh, generally speaking, was pretty similar to the previous week. Uh, most of the export cattle are sort of pretty similar. Most heavy cows are averaging around that $3.40, 3.50 cents a kilo, uh, and your better quality bullocks and steers anywhere from sort of 3.90 up to 4.40 cents a kilo in that sort of bracket. Um, younger cattle um, have sort of stabilised with a lot of the better vealers. You know, a lot of them are making high 400s and into the 500 cents a kilo. Uh, we saw on Tuesday uh, cattle make up to, you know, into the mid 400s and a little bit better. So the quality, if the quality's there, uh, the butchers will pay. Um, just generally speaking in the store markets, which is sort of the best indicator of where the cattle market's going at the moment in Victoria, looks like they've sort of stabilised. We've been on a almost a free fall for... Uh, three or four weeks, and this week, this week particularly for the weaner cattle, they said that the the market was pretty similar to the previous week, and in places a little bit better. A few feedlots back in the market, and a few New South Wales buyers back in the Victorian markets. As it starts to dry out in middle of New South Wales, I think it's just obvious that that's going to happen. We start into the proper um, end of the Western Victorian and Central Victorian wiener sales come first and second week in January, and that'll be a pretty good guide as to where that market's going to go for a little while. And, I mean, obviously our, our wiener sales don't start until the last week in February and then go through in March and April. So that'll be pretty interesting going forward.
1: And there is a sale next week, last one for the year.
14: Yep, yep. Sale of on uh, on Tuesday, and we'll catch up then.
1: Okay, and uh, you have a great weekend, Richard. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back with us next Wednesday to check the final livestock sale of the year from Power Renner. And uh, we'll have him back on Friday next week too to have a look at uh, the year that's just gone by and how things went. Now, important, the cricket starts tomorrow in Brisbane, first test between Australia and South Africa. Uh, Hopefully it'll be continuing Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. If it does, we will be bringing you the country, our shortened version, uh, lunchtime in the cricket. Cricket starts at 11.30, so uh, 13.30 is the time, uh, 13.35 when the... uh, the Country Hour will be on. So that's happening if uh, the test goes through the five days, that will happen next week, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, lunchtime in the cricket for your Country Hour. That's it uh, for the program for this week. You have a great weekend. Whatever you're doing, stay safe and we'll catch you in the cricket on Monday.